preach the Bible, we believe in the Bible, that is the living, breathing Word of God. I'm excited. I'm super excited. This is our last Sunday laying the foundation by which we're going to have the entire study that's probably going to last a couple of years. I'm not going to lie. You guys are in it for the long haul. All right. We're going to lose some, but we're going to gain some too. I, I believe in you guys. All right. Here's the thing. We learned the where when Mark brought John 1. All right. That where that Jesus has always been. Okay, it's not like Jesus began with the birth. He has always been in perfect unison with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect what we call the Trinity. Okay, Jesus has always been. We learned from Aaron last week the how, how Jesus came in the world. That It was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus came into the world. It was a miraculous act that had been laid out since the beginning of time that Jesus was going to come. All right, all the prophets knew it. God knew it. It didn't come as a surprise. Oh, they need a savior? Okay, let's go in, Jesus. All right, that, that's not how it worked. It has always been God's plan. Okay, and now we are going to learn the why Jesus came. The why Jesus came. And there's a lot of argument, all right? There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus came, Okay. And I've heard it from several of my elders. Oh, Jesus came for this. Jesus came for this. Jesus came for this. I'm like, that's all right, but I'm not, I can't go through all of those. <laughs> we are going to go through why Jesus came. And we're going to find out that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. So please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to start that up at verse 18, if you don't mind. so excited i'm telling you if this book makes you more boring i don't know what you're doing okay because reading this book i'm like omg all right it's it's crazy this book is crazy i get to find out about the living breathing word of god i get to find out about the creator of the universe in this book and how much he loves us matthew chapter 1 verse 18 are we all there all right now the birth of jesus christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife. And did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I will be the first to admit, God, that I am weary and weak, but you are not. You're not. Lord, I thank you so much that you are strong. You are faithful and you are loving, even when we are not. 
As many times as I fail you, Lord, you constantly, constantly show yourself faithful and loving. Be faithful to your word tonight. Enrich us with your Holy Spirit. Father, empower us by your Holy Spirit. We desperately, desperately desire you, Jesus. There is no other way we attain satisfaction apart from you and your special revelation so we can know you more and grow in a relationship with you more. So Jesus, please come tonight, Lord, and speak to us. God, intercede for me because I'm going to need it. We pray this in Jesus' holy and undeniable name. Amen. 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 So, I must confess that this passage is an overwhelming passage for me. And do and you know what? It may not be for you. Because here's the thing. We read through Matthew 1, 18 at least once a year at Christmas, right? We, we hear this as a Christmas message. Some of you who actually grew up in a church background are very familiar with this. Some of you who are not from a church background, perhaps this is new. But I myself, I have heard this passage preached from several different teachers in several different ways in several different areas and do you know what until I decided I'm going to teach this it really did not come alive to me until now I'm going to confess to you because sometimes with the word of God sometimes when we are in a church background for a long time we grow numb to the overwhelming power of God's word sometimes sometimes we just we ignore it because we're like, ah, I've heard this before. So that's why tonight may be particularly hard for you. But for some of you, this will be new stuff. And I'm excited. And I'm hoping to shed some light on what may be a familiar passage, but God's word never returns void. Amen? Amen. So we are going to learn about the why Jesus came. And I'm going to be honest. We are going to learn, and some of you will agree with me. We are going to learn about the greatest love story of all time. The greatest love story in all of human history. You can never, ever, 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 ever say that Jesus came merely to teach good morals. Get this straight. We can never ever say that Jesus came merely to be a good example to us and merely just to live a life so we may emulate his. This is false. And this is what some churches will actually teach. But here we don't. Here we believe that we are not, we do not have the privilege to rewrite God's history like that. We do not have the privilege or the authority to change God's position and change the way God feels about us. You see, Jesus was not just a bigger, better version of ourselves. If he was, he'd be a bully and not worthy of our worship. Jesus is not just a better man. He's God-man. So we must know this in order to understand everything that we read about him. And what we learn is that he is a loving and powerful Savior that desperately desires you. Oh, man, does he desire you. Doesn't need you, but he desires you. So when we ask the question, what thrills God? What thrills him? What makes him leap out of his chair? What makes him just go, boom? You know, just, just what makes God just light up? Oh, my gosh, yes. 
What makes God do that? What is God's desire? What does he desire? And some of us would say, well, Zach, the title of this message is that Jesus came to save sinners. So naturally, plausibly, what his desire is, is to save sinners. No. To save sinners is simply a means by which he attains what he desires. And some of you would say, well, Zach, God's complete and total desire is that we would obey him and keep his commandments. That is what thrills God. That is what makes him leap out of his chair, so to speak, in Zach language. No. That is merely a means by which he attains what he desires. What thrills God is to be with man. What thrills God, what his desire is, is to be with you and me. Now, he doesn't need us. We got to keep this straight. We got to make sure that we know this. God does not need us. It's not like he is a needy boyfriend or girlfriend. Just please talk to me type God. Okay. He does not need us. He's completely satisfied. Just as Mark Lesney taught a couple weeks ago. He is completely satisfied with his relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. God does not need us, but he desires us, man. He desires us. And some of you may say to me, or may think, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He may desire some people in this room, but he doesn't desire me. We see God actively dwelling with man throughout the entire Old Testament, okay? How do I know that God desperately desires to be with us? How do I know that that is what makes God thrilled and makes him happy Being with us, we see it in several occasions all throughout the Old Testament and new. If any of you guys are quick Bible floppers, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you're not good at navigating, you know, getting to the beginning of the Bible, uh, you know, it's okay. Just stay. I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 3. We're going to be in Genesis around chapter 2 and 3 just a little bit, okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to jump passages. I'll always give you fair warning, okay? But Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, okay? So we, we have God making the entire heavens and the entire earth, okay? This is God, man. He's like, boom. God said this, came into existence. God said this, bam, into existence. God, through his word, through Jesus, the mode by which he accomplishes his will, okay, he is doing all of this stuff, man, for six days, he is on it, creating this entire universe for all for his glory. And now we see at Genesis chapter two, verses three through seven, it says, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and in the heavens, Before any planet of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. There was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life. And man became a living being. We find that God, on the day of his rest, now there are many reasons why Adam was made. 
But I'm going to propose to you that on the day that God rested, the day that God is like, this is good. He created man so he can be with him. He created man to have fellowship. He created man to climax his creation. And he would walk with man in the cool of the day. Be with his, his image, Adam. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine what that would be like? God was not physically there, but the spirit of the Lord was everywhere. And Adam can hear his voice. Just imagine what that's like in a cool, pleasant, amazing garden. No pain, no suffering. You're walking and God is right there. His presence is overflowing. And you just, you feel at peace. And you feel the presence of God. Not only his presence, but his joy. Oh man, imagine being with a God that is overjoyed to be in your presence as well. Man, I can only imagine that. How incredibly amazing, how phenomenal that feeling is, being in the presence of God. And then we see that after the fall of man, God doesn't leave. God still remains with Adam. He was with Adam and his creation. Okay, he was with Adam and his creation. And as the years went on, it shifted from a person and his creation, Adam and his creation. It shifted from creation to a family. Okay, this family is the family of Abraham. Okay, so God goes from shifting his presence to his creation to shifting his presence with a family. And we see this all throughout Genesis. Okay, where we have Abraham and his family. God is dwelling with them. God is testing them. God is guiding them. God is giving them promises. And God is fulfilling promises. Okay, and so then Abraham comes Isaac. Then comes Jacob. So God stays with the family of Abraham until the family of Abraham becomes an entire nation. Then the presence of the living God then goes from Adam to a family, to the nation of Israel. And we know that God desperately desires, and I don't want you to get me wrong when I use the name desperately. I don't want you to think that God is needy. But God really, really desires us. We go that, 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 that God decides to make himself known through two things. First of all, the law Okay, which we know as the Torah. So the law and then the tabernacle, God decides to reveal himself. He gives the law to Moses and he gives the law to the entire nation of Israel. Okay, and he dwells with his people through the law. He's saying, you keep these commandments, you keep this law, you keep this covenant, and you will be able to live a life with me. You'll be able to have the same mind as I have. You will be able to see what I like, what I desire for you, and we can be close. We can be together again like in Eden. If you follow my law, if you keep my covenant, we can be together again. We can be together. You can dwell with me, O Israel. My children, you can be with me. And we see, so the law, it's where they can keep the commandments and live a life as God intended. And then they have the tabernacle where it's almost like the mobile home of God, where they would lift the tabernacle and that was where they could be in the presence of the Lord. Okay, that's where it was tangible. They can feel it. That was, that was where God was. 
Okay, so God revealed himself through the law and through the tabernacle as well. And we see this and we think, what a perfect setup. What a perfect, you see, God leads the nation of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, into the wilderness, gives them the law, then gives them the city and nation of Israel, the promised land. That he had promised to Abraham, his family. So this is just proof that God has gone from Adam to Abraham to the nation of Israel. Because what he had promised Abraham is now being given to the nation of Israel. And so we think that this is perfect. We have the law. We have the tabernacle. Now we have a piece of real estate. Okay? We've got a piece of real estate where we can set our feet and we can actually act everything out. We can actually establish a government that submits to God. We can actually establish a government by God's law, by God's power, by God's grace, and we can live a life for him. Perfect? Yes, in theory. But there's one thing in the way. You see, there's a perfect setup for Israel, perfect setup for God's children. They had a mode by which they can obey God and have the same mind as God and and, and really have the same just desires as God through the law. They can obey God and be closer with him. They can be in the tabernacle and they can have their own nation where they can establish everything. And we think that this is perfect. And some, for some of us, this is how we feel as well. You see, in theory, it's perfect to have a church, perfect to have a Bible in our home, perfect to have a loving wife or a loving husband. And, and God provides us with these perfect things. And for some reason, it just doesn't work out. Oh, man, I got a good job. I, I, got, I got a wife and kids. I mean, my kids, you know, they're not, they're not bad. I mean, it's like they're walking with the Lord. My, my husband loves the Lord. My wife loves the Lord. I've got a house at least. And so we, we think oh, all these good things that God has given us. The perfect word of God. We have it. Maybe some of you have more than one in your household. Some of you have one in every room of your household, but for some reason, there's still something missing. You go to church, maybe, maybe this is your second time at church today. Amen. Applaud you. Yes. Give yourself a round of applause. No, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. Seriously. Okay, this is amazing. We have these, these perfect opportunities to serve in the church. We have these perfect opportunities to come in. But still, for some reason, there's something wrong. And I know this with working in ministry. How God has given me a job, not only where I can and work with junior high kids, but I can also, I, I, I can make a living and I can, I can serve God. I can serve God. I can't believe it. I've got an amazing family. In fact, I've got two of them. Okay? Well, we'll talk about my family situation later, but I've got two amazing families. I've got, I've got amazing friends that walk with the Lord. And, and in this perfect system, even in America where we thought we had established a perfect system, something happens. Something breaks. Something's wrong. It's not as we intended it and it's not as we thought God intended it. Something breaks. Sometimes we have a hard time grasping what it is. Despite God's grace, Israel continues to lust 
after other things. They elect kings to take the place of God and are surprised when everything goes wrong. Then Babylon comes and takes their promised land. And some of you are in this spot in life where not everything is perfect. And Babylon has taken over. You have lost your job. Your wife or your husband is not following the Lord. Your kids are not walking with God. Your income and finances are not good at all. And so for some of you, your promised land has been taken away. And it's no longer a perfect situation. No matter what law is written, no matter whether something is perfect or something is broken, the same problem goes hand in hand. No matter what standard is set by God, we will never be able to have fellowship with him. We will never be able to have Eden again because sin isolates us from his presence. And I have this all the time where I feel the weight of my own sin. Where I come to a realization where God's presence is removed from me, or so it seems. Where I feel like I cannot hear the voice of God, but it's not because God has not provided the right tools by which I can obtain his presence. It's because of one specific thing, sin. See, God has written the law. If I just obeyed the law, I'd be in perfect presence with God. I'd be able to have fellowship with him. But who here can keep the entire law? Who here can memorize the entire law? I can't. I can't. And for some of you, what is sin? You know, so, you know, sin is such a broad term that we throw around. A lot of the times when we think of sin, maybe we think of Las Vegas. All right? Everything that they do, that's sin. Okay, gambling. Okay, prostitution. That's sin. Okay, the really hardcore stuff. Murder. That's sin. Okay? Like, like that, that's what sometimes in our mind, what our society has deemed as sin. And do you know what? I fall into this trap all the time as well. Where I think, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Okay? At least I'm not as bad as him. At least I'm not as bad as her. And I set people as the standard by which I judge my own sin. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that. I'm guilty of that every single day. But in reality, and a lot of you have probably already heard this, sin is an archer's term. Where we have the target back there. And I go and I shoot. And my intention is to hit that target. But intention doesn't get me a bullseye, does it? Just because I want to hit the target doesn't mean I do. So I hit that, I, I, I string out my bow, I pull, I release, and I miss. I don't hit the target. I don't hit the bullseye. And that means I sinned. Okay, It's an archer's term. I sinned. I just sinned. And the distance between the target and where I hit is the sin distance. In Romans 3.10 it says there is none righteous, no, not one. Almost like Paul was expecting an argument to arise. Where he's like, there was none righteous. And you know, somebody stands up, excuse me, do you know how much I do for the church? Did you know this is my third service I've attended today? Do you know that I am part of the ushers and greeters? Do you know that all of my kids walk with the Lord? Do you have any idea what I do for this church? Do you have any idea how many times, how many hours I have spent here? It was almost like 
Paul was expecting an argument. He's like, there are none righteous. Excuse no, no, not one. <laughs> Sorry, not even me. <laughs> In Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is something that we must come to terms with before we go through anything throughout all of Scripture. And for some of you, this may seem elementary. Okay? But for me, no matter how many times I hear it, I need to hear it. We must establish this foundation that we are, in fact, sinners. And to deny that you're a sinner, it's, it's not only lying to everybody else around you, but you're lying to yourself. And you're not going to accomplish anything. And if we think that there's, there's some ritual, there is some religious thing that we can do if we come to prayer, if we come to service, if we do communion, whatever we do, if we think that somehow this obtains salvation, we are terribly mistaken. Because nowhere in scripture does it say that any ritual done for Christ has us obtained salvation. Nowhere. You can't find it. Even in communion. Some people mistake this for, for, giving, you know, for giving some sort of uh, means of salvation. I've, I've heard people talk about it. So I've given communion. I'm good. But, but Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The act itself of communion does not get you salvation. It is remembering what Jesus has done for you. And I can go on and on about all the religious things that we do. We, we'd be for hours. I'd be, you know... I, all the time, mistake, you know, I'm in ministry, so that means I'm good, you know? My dad's a pastor, that means I'm good. Like, I'm all right, I'm doing all right. That, that was my answer when I was a kid. When people would, literally, this is what my answer was. When people would ask me what I, like, are you a Christian? I'd say, I'm a pastor's kid. That's what I would say. Like, you know, for some, like, like that meant anything. Okay, like that meant anything for my own spirituality. I would say, I'm a pastor's kid. So? <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's what I say to some of my junior hires as well. Where I'm asking, you know, what do you think about Jesus? Well, will my parents do this and this and this? I'm like, no, 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 no. What do you think about Jesus, little dude? <laughs> and so we, we must establish this fact that we are all sinners. Now, Human beings weren't always that way. Human beings weren't always that way. In Genesis chapter 2, once again, a little later on in verse 25, it says, Adam and Eve, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now this is very, very important that we look at this. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. No shame. They had nothing to hide from. They were not ashamed in the least bit. They would walk freely in their nakedness, not just because they had no shame. They had nothing to hide. They didn't want to cover themselves up at all. Nothing to hide at all. No shame. But then we see in Genesis chapter 3, 7 through 8, after they had participated in the eating of the apple and man had fallen and they had realized something. They didn't quite realize that they had sinned yet, okay? Until God told them. They, they didn't quite grasp it, but they did feel something. They felt shame. 
It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is what sin does to us. Shame. Separation. Where we feel like, I'm sinful. I'm exposed. So I must cover myself up. I do this all the time. I have to tithe twice this week because I've sinned more. <laughs> we, we feel like I have to go to church more now because I'm sinning more. Any of you ever? I've done that. Man, ooh, yelled at my wife. I better go to prayer. That'll make it all better. Just walking into church. Sin produces this shame and separation from God. And there's a natural discontentment with ourselves because of sin. There's a natural discontentment, uncomfortability with ourselves as a result of our separation from the righteousness of God. We want to cover ourselves and hide from God because sin produces isolation. Okay? That bond between us and God has been severed. That bond that we had in Eden with God has been completely severed and we feel ourselves drifting more and more away. And as we drift more away from God and his righteousness and his light, our shame increases more and more and more and more. And we fall into this depressing state where our God is gone. You see, this is why body image, I feel like, and social status is so incredibly important. Because we long for Eden again. And we have a natural just longing to be fulfilled by something. Sin produces isolation. It produces shame. So therefore, we must put more and more and more fig leaves on ourselves. So we can feel better and less exposed and less shameful. I've sinned more and more and more. I haven't been respecting my husband. I haven't been respecting my wife. My mind goes places I never imagined it could. So therefore, I must get another job. I must, I must you know, tithe more. I must, I must do all of this stuff. Maybe then I can be fulfilled again. Maybe then I can be fulfilled. I do this. There are nights when I hide my face from God because I feel so ashamed. There are times when I feel so sinful that when I pray to God, I literally cover my face because I don't have fig leaves with me. Because I feel so ashamed in the presence of such a perfect God. But do you know what? I kind of like that about God. I'm going to tell you the truth. I like the fact that God is so righteous that if I sin, I can't be in the presence of him. Because I wouldn't want to go to a heaven where we have this lackadaisical God that's like, uh, you, you, know, you committed adultery once or twice, whatever, you can get in. I don't want to serve a God like that, do you? I don't want to worship a God like that. It's like I said before, he just becomes a bigger, you know, more powerful version of ourselves. And that's a bully. That's like a boss, not a God. Yeah, I mean, you screwed up, whatever, grace. Yeah. 
I love the fact that God does not allow us into his presence. That we're not allowed into heaven because of our sin. I also hate it because I sin all the time. But there's good news. Like I said, this is a love story. Okay. One of the worst things, and I, I, I forgot to say this in the beginning, guys. I'm here and Aaron's here. We come up here not because Rob and Brett and Tony are trying to train us to be teachers. Let's get that straight. I'm not up here to be training to be a teacher. Aaron's not up here to just be a teacher. We're here to be shepherds. We're here to train to be shepherds. And the worst thing that we as shepherds can do is to be ignorant of the suffering of our sheep. And see, I know that there are some of you in here that have been victims of sexual abuse. Statistically, that's just a fact. I know that for some of you, church is sometimes brutal to go to. And sometimes you feel judged because you have received an abortion in your lifetime. In your past. Or someone in your family has. And I know that many of you guys, you guys, you gentlemen in here, battle against the lust of your mind every day. That it gets to a point where you just hate yourself for it. I do. And and sometimes it gets to a point where you feel so shameful that how can my wife or my God love me? For how lustful and how terrible I am in my mind. I know that some of you in here have felt so much shame that you actually have thought of taking your life maybe somewhere in the past. It's, 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 it's not special revelation even. It's, it's, it's just a fact that humans suffer. Humans suffer and humans feel shame because we are separated from our God. And I want to let you know that be, but because Aaron and I are shepherds, because Pastor Brett and Pastor Tony and Pastor Rob are shepherds, because we are shepherds, don't ever feel like you can't come to us with these stuff, this stuff. Don't ever feel like you have to hide yourself in the midst of God's people. Ever. If we ever make you feel that way, please rebuke us. Please. Or at least rebuke me. I don't know if I can speak for And some of you who are in this suffering and in this shame and in this captivity, you're wondering, just as the prophets did, Malachi and Zechariah, where you're like, where has God gone? Where is he? He's absent from my relationships. He's absent from my, he's absent everywhere. Where is God? Where is he? most of the prophets are saying, they're like, where is he going? Where's God gone? And for 400 years, his presence actually is absent. For 400 years, we see that he dwells with Adam and creation. He dwells with Abraham. He dwells with the nation of Israel through the law and through the tabernacle and eventually through the temple. But now, for 400 years, his presence is absent. And this is after Babylon and after every, all, all the people that have um, taken Israel captive. They're like, you can go back. And some of them are like, ah, nah, we're all right. You know, some of them went back, but they were more concerned about their homes than they were about reconciling with God. Some of you are like this. I, I got more important things to do, Zach. God can wait. God can wait. For now, I've got to work 
with my, with my job and with my marriage. God can wait. But you still feel shame. And I'll deal with my shame just for now. I'll deal with my shame and I'll, I'll bring it to God later. I'll deal with all the shame and all the suffering inside of me. All the abuse that I've received from my parents. All the abuse I've received from my spouse. All the abuse I've received from my boss and from my, from my friends. I'll, I'll just take that for now. I'll give it to God later after my life is sorted out. All the shame I feel for, for all the lust I have, all the shame I feel for all the lying, cheating, and stealing, all the adultery I've committed, all the lies that I've told, I'll, I'll burden that just for now. God can wait. God can wait until school is over. God can wait until I have this next promotion. God can wait until my marriage is fixed. God can wait. God is waiting. But... He's actively pursuing you. He's a gentleman. He knocks. And if you don't open the door, he won't enter. But he is pursuing you. He does desperately want to be with you. He does want a relationship with you. And this is perfectly, amazingly depicted in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 3, the Lord began to speak to Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and the children of harlotry. For the land has committed great adultery by departing from the Lord. Gomer was the name of Hosea's wife. God said, I want you to go take a prostitute for a wife. A wife that you know is bad. And Gomer was bad, man. Oh my gosh, Gomer was bad. At one point, she sells herself to other men, okay, for food, for clothing. For money, for spices, and nice oils. She uses all of Hosea's money to make offering to Baal and other gods. I do this every day of my life. I take all the good things that God has given me and I squander them on idols. All the love that God has given me and I squander them and I, I ignore him. And yet God's love transcends my failure and harlotry. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love the Lord has for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes and the pay of the pagans. So I bought her for myself, 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. Do you know what Hosea did? Hosea had a wife who not only cheated on him multiple times, but stole from him and lied to him and sold herself to another man who was richer than him. And Hosea, you see, most of us men, we'd be like, forget you. You don't love me back? Then forget you. But Hosea, depicting God's love, took like almost everything he had. Everything he had, but that's a lot of money. And bought her back. Bought Gomer back. You kidding me? This is why Jesus came. To buy you back. 
He came to buy you back. You have sold yourself to idols. You have sold yourself to sin. And you have gotten into the deepest of the deep. And you have so much regrets and so much shame built up inside of you. But Jesus has come to buy you back. Just as Hosea bought Gomer back. And John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came from heaven to be here and buy you. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Galatians 3, 12, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Colossians 1, 21, and you who once were alienated and the enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet Now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He looks at you for seeing all your failures and says, I want him. I want her. And I will do anything to get her. I'll do anything to get her. Anything. Do you realize how amazing this love is? Oh, man. God came for you so he could be with you. He came to save sinners because he wants to be with you. He said, I want them so bad, I will die to be with them. That's what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't desire your mindless religion. He desires a relationship with you. And just as Hosea bought back Gomer, Jesus has bought us with the blood of the cross. How exciting is that? I don't want to leave you here with that application, though. This is great news. Jesus has bought us back because, because we are sinners. We needed to be bought back, right? We needed to be bought back. And in Luke 5, 29 through 32, we see the heart of Jesus. We see him. It says, then Levi gave him a great feast in his house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and the others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus loved sinners. He called them to repentance. So we, as Christ followers, must love sinners. And for some reason, we think that there's a difference between a Christian and a sinner. Nope. We're sinners too. When somebody does come up to you, and this will happen, maybe it already has, and is contemplating an abortion, is having thoughts that are lustful, and does come to you with this this problem of drinking, the last thing we should do is condemn them. That's the last thing we should do. Jesus fellowshiped and ate with them, broke bread with them, loved them. Loved me. He, still, he loves me and all my unrighteousness, all my sin. 
You see, when Jesus called Peter, he didn't say, you can be my disciple if we can sit down and we can meet and let's go through your requirements. What type of degree do you have? You know, oh, do you agree with our theology and our eschatology and all this stuff? Hey, do you really, you know, let's, let's think about this for a second. I don't know if I want you to be my disciple yet. No, he just simply said, follow me. Peter, follow me. I know how messed up you are, but I'm not. If you follow me, you'll change. We call this sanctification. There's my theological word for the day. Sanctification. I love how Jesus doesn't require anything from me but a repentive heart. And a desire to be with him. I'm going to close with a psalm. For those of you who want to turn to it, turn to Psalm 51. And I think that this accurately summarizes everything that we just learned. Jesus came to save sinners. How do we react to this? I'm going to read the entire psalm. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. See, before we go any further. This is written by David. Who had not only just cheated on his wife and lusted after another man's wife, but had that man's, uh, that woman's husband murdered. Okay? So not only has he committed adultery, but he is now murdered. Okay? David. The David that slew Goliath. The David, the great king David of Israel. This is him, rotten, dirty sinner like all of us. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak. And blameless when you judge. Behold I was brought forth in iniquity. And in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. That the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. God of my salvation and my tongue shall be sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth shall show uh, forth all your praise for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good and your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and the whole burnt offering, they shall offer bulls on your altar. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. You came to save us because you desire to be with us.
Thank you, Lord, that you have bought us back from all of our idols, all of our sin and all of our shame. Lord, I pray for those who are in feeling ashamed tonight, all their sin. God, I pray for all of us, Lord, that, that we might open our hearts to you, Lord, that we may be broken before you and acknowledge, Jesus, that it is you that came for us. It is you that initiate salvation. It is you that initiates worship. Lord, may we worship you with the knowledge of the salvation that you have brought us. I pray for all of those who don't know you tonight. God, I pray that you break their hearts. Break their hearts, Lord, tonight. So, Father, we pray, we pray desperately for your Holy Spirit tonight, God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for dwelling with us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If any of you desire prayer, um, staff, raise your hand. We want to pray with you, okay? So, let's worship. Amen. Let's stand, close with a song of worship. You can eat something after this, but that's it. All right, let's worship. Into marvelous light I'm running Out of darkness, out of shame By the cross you are the truth You are the 